Bibles to Psalm 33. Uh, have any of you ever seen those those online photo sessions on Instagram or something where, where someone, well, the photographer will compliment the person and then snap a picture right afterwards? There's a, there's a series of, a few years ago, I think, where I think what would happen is a photographer would go up to a stranger and say, hey, can I take your picture? And they'd be like, okay, sure. And then, you know, right before they snap the picture, they'd be like, your smile is really beautiful, snap. Or, you know, you have great hair, snap. And then they'd get this picture that was just pure, not posed, candid, unexpected joy uh, from the, the people that, you know, received a compliment that they weren't expecting to. There's something about real happiness, about, about real joy, about unexpected, unposed uh, joy that really can't be fought against. It, it, it seems different. You can tell the difference between someone who's who's posed and smiling and ready for a picture and someone who is laughing candidly. And if, I, if you've ever received a compliment you weren't expecting or if you've seen, you're, you're about to see someone that you haven't seen for a long time and you're really excited, you might try to play it cool and, and not smile because, you know, that, that would be dorky or whatever, but sometimes it's hard to not smile because you're happy to see people. You're happy to be complimented. You're happy about uh, whatever situation you're in in life. There's something about real joy that is really, really, really hard to resist. Last week, as we looked at Psalm 32, we, we talked about the joy of confession, about how David was holding on to some sort of private sin, and, and while he did that, he felt grief, he felt guilt, he entered into what really sounds like depression. His bones waste away. He's groaning all day long. He's suffering, but when he finally decides to give in and, and confess his sin to the Lord, his depression turns to joy and gladness. Psalm 32, although it, uh, there's a bit of darkness in the middle, it ends with, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so as we look at Psalm 33 today, we see that it begins with almost the exact same line. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. What we're seeing here is David turning from private sin to public rejoicing. And why is he rejoicing? Why can we rejoice in Yahweh? Because of his incredible, almost unfathomable, steadfast love towards his people. I, me I mentioned last week that one of the reasons why confession, it feels so freeing, uh, offers so much hope, is because we confess our sins to a, a God who is merciful, merciful and gracious and who wants to forgive us. And so Psalm 33 is kind of the continuation of Psalm 32. It's the clear picture of that gracious, merciful, forgiving God. It's the clear picture of, of Yahweh choosing his people. How great and awesome is our God. And so the big idea of Psalm 33 is that Yahweh's steadfast love compels us to irresistible joy. Would you stand with me as you're able and hear God's word read? 
Psalm 33. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Yahweh looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Right off the bat, where does the psalm begin? It begins with saying, shout for joy. So our first point is is just to rejoice and praise. These first three verses are really just an encouragement, an exhortation, a call for joyful worship. The upright, the, the righteous, the people of God are called joyfully to praise him with everything that we ha- they have. We can use instruments uh, like the harp and the lyre. We can sing to him. We can shout for joy. All because we are thankful to the Lord for what he's done for us. This, this beginning portion is really just a picture of unadulterated joy in the Lord. And why? Well, like we said in the previous psalm, there's David is, is suffering through guilt, this, this weight of, of keeping his sin covered up, the fear of being found out. And so here in, in Psalm 33, he's compelled to rejoice. He's reacting to the freedom he's experiencing. And it, it's true that the people who've experienced the, the most pain in life also can experience the most joy. Those of you who know what it's like to suffer, to go through grief or g- guilt or loss or shame or, or whatever, 
you may have suffered through, then, then you know how much better it is to experience true joy. If you know how bad it can get, then the best parts of life are just that much better. People who, who've never really experienced any real difficulty tend to take the, the good parts of life for granted because that's just the norm. This is how life goes. It's, it's always good. But for those of you who have experienced real hurt, the, the highs of life are, are that much sweeter, that much better, and there's no way you're taking it for granted. That's why we talked last week about the forgiven being truly happy. Those of us in this room who are Christians have at all, all at some point come to this realization in our lives that, that we are sinful people in need of a Savior, that we are broken and desperately hopeless. That can be a really life-shaking moment, but then to, to feel that or to know that Jesus Christ offers us salvation from our sins for free without asking anything of us, Man, there's nothing but joy and relief in that moment of realization. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And so to know that Jesus Christ has saved us, to know that he has given us what we don't deserve but grace and mercy, is cause for rejoicing in God our Savior. John Newton, uh, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, you may have known, heard that song before. As he was dying, he, he said that his memory was fading, but he knew two things for sure. That he was a great sinner and that Christ was a great Savior. So Christian, be reminded today of where you used to be. Where you deserve to be going. And let the, let the, let the rejoicing and that grace you've received fill you with pure, undignified rejoicing in God who has saved you and who loves you. Moving on, the next few verses, uh, we see why God is so worthy of rejoicing. And it's not just because of where we've come from to where we are now, but it's because of who he is. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of adoration just because of who he is. There is no one else that exists that is like that. Why who he is compels us to irresistible joy. First, we can rejoice in his upright word. Verse 4, after we hear this exhortation to rejoice in him, verse 4 begins with, for the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. In other words, this is why we can rejoice in him. We can rejoice in his upright word. His word is upright. His work is faithful. So Christian, how have you felt his upright word work faithfully in your life? How does it move you to gratitude to reflect on how he has worked? And in verse 5, it says that he loves righteousness and justice. This is a God worth worshiping. This is a God worth praising. He's righteous 
and just. He loves these things. He's not like some of these uh, mythical Greek gods who are selfish and promiscuous and conniving. He's a God who loves righteousness, who loves justice. This is so hopeful in a world today where it seems like these things are coming, becoming harder and harder to come by. How many people in our country are let off for their crimes scot-free? How many companies move to poor nations to save on labor and make a quick buck? How much pain is there in the world due to unrighteous men and women seeking the best for themselves? doing everything they can to get ahead of one another. And how much would we be in the same boat were it not for the grace of God? We all know that, that justice is inherently a good thing. We all like that word. We all like the idea of justice. And yet how often do our, our actions and the way we live our daily choices reveal that we're, you know, maybe a little bit more concerned with our own lives and, and having the best for ourselves. How we spend our time and our money is usually a pretty good indicator of where our priorities are. We like the idea of righteousness and justice, but we often live for our own good. God, however, loves righteousness and justice. Everything that he says and does is purely righteous and purely just. And in fact, he's, he's the ultimate standard for what these things are. Righteousness and justice would mean nothing if God didn't exist. A lot of so-called justice that takes place in the world today that doesn't line up with his character or his plans or his purposes isn't actual justice. True justice comes from God and glorifies him. And his word defines what it is. Praise him for who he is, the God of true righteousness and justice that we can look to as our standard for these things. His word defines justice because it is upright and holy. And next, listen to the incredible working power of his upright word. It's not just saying words but there is an effectual force behind his word. In verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He, his word created everything that we know, and all their host, everything that inhabits the created universe. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. His word gathers the waters of the sea, the, the thing that covers most of our globe, into a heap like it's nothing. Verse 9, he spoke and it came to be. Yahweh spoke everything into existence from nothing just by saying it. Every molecule on the planet, every plant, animal, landform, every droplet of water on the globe, every star in the universe came into existence just by God telling them to exist. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. 
His counsel brings nations to death. He frustrates our measly plans. There's nothing outside of his control. All of our plans have absolutely no say against the power of his word. In verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. His counsel, his word is eternal. It has always existed and will always exist because he has always existed and will always exist. What he says and what he plans is firm forever. His word will never end. And so rejoice in his upright word. It's the reason we exist today. It's the reason we know how to live. It's the reason why we know anything about Yahweh at all. His word defines righteousness and justice and it creates and brings life. If you've got a Bible in your hand, uh, keep your finger in Psalm 33, but if you don't mind flipping ahead a number of pages to the Gospel of John chapter 1, give you a few seconds to flip there. We're just going to be there briefly. Okay, now, now listen to what John has to say. This is hundreds of years later. Listen to what John has to say about the upright word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In these first few verses, John says that the word of God is eternal. He was in the beginning. And the word of God creates. All things were made through him. Now if you flip back to Psalm 33, what do we see that it says about God? Well, it says the same thing. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. His word is eternal. Verse 6 and 9, his word creates. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. In Psalm 33, we see the same truths about God's word that we see in John 1. The word is eternal, and the word creates. But John adds a little bit to our understanding. He calls the word a he. And as you read the rest of that chapter of John, it becomes clear that this word of God, this personal word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, is Jesus. The word of God who is God himself. And so he is the light of men who gives life to the dead, John says. God's word, Jesus Christ, is so powerful that he is able to create life from nothing as he did in the beginning And that includes reviving the dead hearts of men and women and making us alive together with him. The Bible calls us spiritually dead in sin before we're saved. But when we believe that Jesus died for us, took our sin to the cross, and that through his death 
and resurrection became our Savior, we can be made alive. We move from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. This is the gospel. And it's completely undeserved. And so just as the word created everything in the beginning and gave life to our planet, so he continues to give life to the hearts of men and women who are dead, lost in their sins. And if you're a Christian here, you know this. You have been made alive in Christ. Let that truth ring in your ears and resonate in your heart and compel you to irresistible joy in the Lord. And and if you're not a Christian, listen to me. There is joy and hope beyond what I could ever hope to put into words waiting for you in Christ Jesus. Turn away from your sin and allow the living word, Jesus Christ, to make you truly alive in him. Believe in him as your Lord and Savior. And you can join the rest of us here in rejoicing in his upright word out of gratitude for all that he has done for you. Rejoice in his upright word. Verse 12 to 19, we see that we can rejoice in his unwarranted mercy. These verses, again, we just see how how undeserving we are of his kindness. So we can rejoice in his unwarranted mercy. What does verse 12 say? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Blessed. If if you were here last week, hopefully you remember, Sean uh, said it in his prayer today, that this word blessed also can just mean happy in Hebrew. And so it would be just as fine to read it as happy as the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. This psalm begins with a call to joy, and right here in the middle, just in case we forgot, there's another reminder that we can be happy in the Lord. The people chosen as his heritage are blessed. The, The reason why God's mercy is so unwarranted, so undeserved, is because he chose us. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything at all for him to look upon us with with this mercy and decide that we're worthy of being his people. The assurance of forgiveness earlier today makes, makes this very clear. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There's nothing we could have done. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. He created us. He lived an upright, perfect life. He went to the cross. He died. He buried. He was buried. He, w- he rose again. And he chose us as his heritage. There is so much meaning in that word, heritage. It's in the name of our church, Heritage Grace. To be chosen by his heritage means that we have been made heirs of God. So his salvation is better than we thought. We haven't just been saved from sin to be brought into his house and tucked away in the back kitchen with the rest of the servants eating the leftover food. 
We are heirs with Christ, and we receive the full inheritance as children of God. Brother, you are a son of God. Daughter, you are, sister, you are a daughter of God. Whom he loves and blesses with all the blessings of the true, ultimate son of God, Jesus Christ. And so, in that sense, being adopted as heirs, being his son or his daughter, means that Jesus is our brother now. That's the kind of closeness that we receive. The kind of intimacy that we have been brought into as his children. And so rejoice, people chosen by grace. Because you are blessed, you are happy. You're the recipient of unwarranted mercy. And it gets even better. 13 to 15, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Yahweh looks down from his throne and he sees everything. He sees everyone. He sees everything you do, what you think, what you want, where you go. He sees it all. And that has not stopped him from choosing you, son or daughter of God. Imagine if everything you've ever done, everything you'd ever said or thought or desired or pursued, if all of that was seen and known by the whole world, how many people would choose you to be an inheritor of their estate? How many people would feel like showing you mercy? Probably not many. We've seen celebrities basically lose their entire reputation and careers from a single tweet from 10 years ago. Imagine what people would think about you if they knew everything that you know about yourself. Would you be their first choice for compassion? Would you be their first choice as an heir? I doubt it, but I know that's true for me. But God, even though he sees and knows everything that you have ever done, all of who you are, has still chosen you. How does that make you feel? And there is another reason why this is so good. Because we can't save ourselves from sin. None of these amazing gospel truths would be shout for joy worthy if we could just do it on our own. When someone does you a favor that you, know, you probably could have done yourself, it's still a nice gesture. But it doesn't exactly make you jump up and down and clap your hands, does it? But look at verses 16 to 19 again. The king is not saved by his great army. 
a warrior is not delivered by his great strength, for the, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So the most powerful king in the universe, is, or in the world, it says here, can't save himself with his great army. And a mighty war horse cannot ultimately save. These expressions of earthly power, while they may be intimidating or impressive, are ultimately, from an eternal perspective, useless. For us today, I'm assuming that you don't find a whole lot of security in a war horse. Uh, there are probably some people who've never even seen a horse. Or maybe having a big army doesn't bring a whole lot of comfort to you. But we all have a war horse. We all have something that we tend to place a sense of security in. That sometimes we feel like might actually be able to save us when life takes a downturn, a downhill turn. So what's your war horse? What do you tend to place your security, your salvation in? Is it having a great pension, being set for life financially after you retire? Is it being able to maybe afford to send your kids to a Christian school or or buying your house in a safe neighborhood with an alarm system and a sign on the front lawn? For me, it's probably just being able to have a plan and stick to it. I like to know what's coming in a few months, in a year, in five years from now. Whatever your war horse is, the truth is that your pension cannot save you. A Christian school will not save your kids. And having a safe house will not save you. These things will not die for you. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can truly make you go from spiritual death to spiritual life for the rest of eternity. And so, so what's your war horse? Really think about that. Really think about where you place your security. If the answer is anything but Jesus... Please allow this psalm and the rest of the scripture to reorient your priorities. To remind you that only Jesus can save. That only Yahweh delivers our soul from death. Only God can save. And he will. And he will. Finally, we can rejoice in his unwavering love. Just look at the last three verses, 20 to 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. This is where we are now. We as the church 
are waiting for the Lord our God. We are waiting for him to return to make all things new, to destroy the effects of sin and death that have crept into our lives and everything in the world. And we are waiting for him to bring us to himself in the new heavens and the new earth where all sorrow will be wiped away. Where all sin will be gone forever. And there will be nothing but a sense of unfaltering, unwavering joy and peace that overwhelms every single moment of every day that we're there with him. That's what we wait for. For now, we're waiting, and waiting can be so, so hard. When we go through suffering, the waiting period of, of what's next really can't come soon enough. When we're waiting for answers of what the next stage of life may look like, waiting with that unknown can, looming can be scary. And in a bigger way, as, as we wait in the here and now for the coming of Jesus, it's sometimes really, really hard. Sometimes life becomes difficult and we can't help but wonder when Jesus will return. But we're not waiting for something unknown. We wait with hope, with eager anticipation, knowing what's on the horizon. And while we wait, we can be comforted knowing that Yahweh is our help and our shield right now. He is our helper, our provider, our protector. And so however difficult life may become, and it does become difficult, we can rejoice knowing that he is here with us in our trials. He is our help and our shield. Have you ever heard someone say, Something like, oh, I, don't, I don't know how I get through this without Jesus or, or my faith or whatever it may be. That, that's the realization of this truth, that he is our help and our shield. We know that he's protecting and providing for us, even and especially in difficulty. And so we can trust in him as our help and our shield, and we can also trust in him we can trust in his holy name, it says in verse 21. Simple trust can make you glad in the Lord. I don't know how many times I've been anxious about something and kind of doing that downward spiral of overthinking and, and worrying. Then I remind myself that no matter what happens, it will be okay. And God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He's here for me. He's, he's always been with me wherever I've gone, and he will be with me now, and he will continue to be with me. And that trust, being reminded once again of, of the trust that we can have in him because he is steadfast, because he is faithful, it does, it does make me glad. You know, maybe it doesn't always look exactly like that kind of rowdy shout for joy stuff we see in verses 1 to 3, but it's still gladness, it's still joy, it's still peace beyond understanding. And so when the psalm says we trust in his holy name, we can know that our heart can be glad in him. And 
when it says trust in his holy name, it's talking about the totality of God's character. It's like when, you know, kind of like today when we say, I love her with all my heart. Now, I'm not talking about the physical organ muscle that's pumping blood through my body. I'm talking about with all of me, with, with all that I am. And names in the Old Testament are kind of like that. They symbolize something about someone. When we trust in his holy name, it's talking about the totality of his character. God, throughout the Bible, is called many, many, many names, all of which point to a specific aspect of who he is. But the most important name is Yahweh, his personal covenant name. It's used 13 times in this psalm. And it's connected with the covenants that he would make with his chosen people, that he would be their God and that they would be his people. David asserts his trust in the holy name of Yahweh because he knows that God has promised to always be his God. And he knows that God will never break his promises. That's why we... This is why we always begin our services with a a call to worship and a prayer of adoration. It's an integral part of being saved by grace to return our gratitude to God and praise, adoring who he is. And honestly, I don't don't know about you, but uh, sometimes it's really hard to just praise him for who he is. It's so easy to go to thankfulness. And and thankfulness is good, Don't, don't get me wrong, but Praising him for who he is can be very challenging. And I think the reason praise like this can be so hard, so challenging, is because we often have far too small a view of who he is. You know, we tend to put him in some categorical box in our minds that kind of excludes other parts of him. He's the loving father. He's the disapproving father. He's there to give me what I need and want. He's so high above me that I I can't possibly reach out to him and know him. All of us have have a very small view of who God is in comparison to what he's actually like. And that's really, at the end of the day, just because we are finite and he is infinite. And so a way to grow in our ability to praise him, to to worship him for who he is, is to learn with joy more about his character, reading psalms like this and being reminded of of truths about him. Every time you read your Bible, you can be asking, "What, what does this teach me about God? And you can spend a moment there at the end of your devotional time or throughout your week, praising him for what you've learned, for what you've seen that day. And so today, the church is under the new covenant. But that essential promise of God being our God and us being his people, that's the same. God will be our God and we will be his people. And if you are a Christian, you have an unbreakable commitment from the most powerful being in the universe, that he will be yours and that you will be his. 
There is nothing that can come against him. There's no danger or threat of persecution that ultimately poses a threat to you. So let yourself be glad in him as you trust in his holy name, Yahweh, your God. And finally, Psalm 33 ends with an appeal in, in 22, in verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is a big ask, but it's, it's not some, you know, desperate Hail Mary with a small chance of success. It's full of confidence. Just as David was confident that God would keep his promise, we can be confident that God will keep his promise. We can be confident that since he has always kept every single one of his promises, he will continue to do so. And we can place confident hope in our God who loves us with steadfast, unwavering, unconditional love. It's who he is. And his steadfast covenant love can never be broken by anything you or anyone else could ever do. Why? Because he has chosen you as his inheritance, and nothing can snatch him from us, snatch us from his hand. And so just as the psalm began exhorting the people of God to shout for joy, just as we were reminded again that the people are happy in the Lord in verse 12, it concludes with being glad in him for all of who he is and what he's done. There are so many reasons we could rejoice in the Lord. And, you know, it's okay if you don't have every single one of them that we've gone through today memorized. That's not the point of this psalm. It's not the point of why I'm preaching today. What I hope our time in Psalm 32 and 33 has done for you, though, is to cause you to reflect on his amazing and upright word, which has the power to create, and as Jesus Christ, the power to make spiritually dead hearts alive again and bring them into salvation. I hope you've been able to and will continue to reflect on his unwarranted, his undeserved mercy towards you. You couldn't have done anything by yourself to deserve it, and yet, Christian, if, if you are a Christian, you have been counted as God's very own son or daughter, and you will receive an eternal reward with him in heaven. It should cause you also to reflect on his unwavering love towards you. He's made you a promise, and he will never, ever break it. And so with these truths in mind, we wait with anticipation for the day when his promise is finally fulfilled, and we are brought into his house where we will be with him forever. So church, are you glad? Are you glad in the Lord? Verse 21 says, our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. We're not glad in our own hearts. We're not finding happiness in ourselves. And it's not that we find joy in our circumstances because a lot of times there's not a lot of joy to be found in them. No, our, our hearts are glad in him because we trust in his holy name our heart, all of who we are, is glad and trusts in his holy name, all of who he is. His upright word, 
his unwarranted mercy and his unwavering love. Would you please join me in prayer? Lord God, you are so great and magnificent that any words we say will fall completely short of who you are. Would you help us to rejoice in who you are, Lord? Would you help us to rejoice in your love for justice and righteousness? For your powerful creating word. Lord, help us to rejoice that we have been chosen by you. Would we not take that for granted? Would you not allow us to think to cheapen this mercy by thinking that we might have done something to deserve it. Lord, would you help us to rejoice in your unwavering love towards us that is deep and wide. Lord, we wait for you, for you are our help and shield here and now and forevermore. Make us glad in you because we trust in your holy name. We trust in all that you are. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us today as we hope in you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for his sake we pray. Amen.